Okay. Hello, everyone. Um, welcome to another edition of Cultural Class Podcast, uh, the podcast where we get to interact with people from different backgrounds, get to learn about other cultures and things around the world. Uh, my name is Nusayari, and today I have yet another guest on the episode. I actually have my very first lawyer on the episode. Uh, I have immigration lawyer Jim Hacking on the podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Jim. Thanks so much for having me. Sure. Uh, how's your day been so far? Uh, how's everything in St. Louis? It's good. Have you been to St. Louis before? I have not. Uh, maybe crossed it. I'm not sure. Uh, but I haven't like been to the town. Uh, anything, any advice if I eventually go there? What's the first thing to do? Well, it's, it's, it has a low population of immigrants, so I didn't pick the best place in the world to open up an immigration law firm. But um, mm. it is growing, and uh, the city has a great organization here called the International Institute, and they have resettled refugees in the United States for the last 40 years. So anyone wow. in a war in the last 40 years, there's a lot of those people here in St. Louis. So because of that, we have a lot of good restaurants with a lot of good food types from different parts of the world. Got it. Got it. The International Institute, you call it? That's right. Got it. Got it. And Jim has been practicing immigration law. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, for more than a decade now. And you've been a lawyer generally for more than 20 years. So uh, he's very knowledgeable in matters like this. And hopefully, you know, we get to learn a bunch of stuff on the episode today. Sure. And uh, before we start here, uh, can you just give me a uh, a bit of your background personally like did you grow up in st louis uh, how was it for you uh, growing up all that good stuff sure i grew up in st louis um i grew up in the 80s and then i went to high school in late 80s and college in the 90s when i was done with college i thought i was going to become a jesuit priest i was catholic oh wow and um i went to denver to learn um at the novitiate for a while and it, i found out that it wasn't for me so I left and came back to St. Louis, and I worked in a law firm for two years before I went to law school. And uh, after I left the Jesuits, I was sort of uh, having some issues with the Catholic Church because of the priest problem. Mm. And um, I decided to leave the church. And I actually, during law school, uh, I met a young lady who was from Egypt. Uh, she had moved to the United States when she was seven. And she grew up in Chicago, and we were in law school together. So we graduated in 1997. In 1998, I converted to Islam. And then in 1999, we got married. And I was a lawyer for two years um, doing general litigation. And then I started doing maritime law, which is when the barges and boats go up and down the Mississippi River, they get into accidents. And I did that for a while. But the Muslims from the mosque were always asking me to help them with their immigration issues. Mm -hmm. And so I kept telling them, well, I was a barge lawyer. And they go, what is a barge? We don't even know what that is. So <laughs> um, I always knew that I wanted to have my own clients. And at the barge firm, we only had three clients and they were big shipping companies. And my worry was that if one of those shipping companies ever stopped doing business with us, I could be 45 or 55 with no clients of my own. So in 2007, I decided to open up my own firm. And at the time, I thought I would do law for immigrants. So I would teach myself immigration law, but I would also do car accidents and wills and everything else for immigrants. But quickly, it became quickly obvious that the real need was for uh, immigration. And so I just started narrowing my practice and stopped doing those other practice areas and referred those cases out. And then, and then in uh, 2000 and 
15, my wife came to work with us. She left the law school. She'd been working as a professor at the law school and she joined our firm. And right now in our office, we have about 13 people from all over the world. Amani's from Egypt. Wow. Uh, longtime paralegal and office manager. Adela is from Bosnia. Wow. Marwan, who handles our clients, is from Iraq. We have people from Peru and from America and from mm. uh, all over. So it's, it's really a diverse group. And so now uh, all we do is immigration. And what I do myself is I sue USCIS or the State Department for immigration delays. So because a lot of our clients are Muslim, a lot of them get their cases hung up longer than they're supposed to. So I've sued the State Department and USCIS over 300 times. Um, wow. I love doing it because I get to help people who've been stuck with their immigration case to get their case moving. Do, do you, um, from your experience, uh, do most of your Muslim clients experience delays more often than your non-Muslim clients? I tell my clients all the time that the hardest thing for me to do mm. is to obtain an immigration benefit for a Muslim man. So mm. men seem to go along at the same pace, but men really have a hard time, especially if they're from countries like Yemen or Iran. Gotcha. Syria, um, they have a really hard time. I'm, I'm just about convinced that for an Iranian man to get an immigration benefit, he's almost going to have to plan on suing USCIS. Or wow. Yeah. So just factor that into the cost right from the onset. Yeah, when we were in law school, they taught us this concept. It's called arbitrary and capricious. Arbitrary, arbitrary and capricious. Yeah. Okay. So what that means is the law is not supposed to be arbitrary and capricious. The law should be fair to everyone but they don't do that. And so it wasn't until I started doing immigration law that I really learned what arbitrary and capricious means. Two clients from the same country could file the same application and they pick and choose who they sit on and who they don't. And there's no real rhyme or reason to it. And, and I have friends who have actually worked for immigration and they tell me, oh, Jim, you're too conspiratorial. You, you, <laughs> you believe all these outlandish theories about them. And really it's just, it's just basic incompetence. And it's probably somewhere in between. I probably do like impute evil motives to them more often than I should. But at the same time, there are definitely people working in immigration. There's good people that immigration in all aspects. Mm -hmm. But for instance, there's an embassy that I've sued more than all the other ones combined. I've sued the embassy in Morocco. Oh, wait, you sued the embassy in the foreign country? That's my favorite thing to do. Wow, is that even possible? Yeah, so what happened was I, I went up to Washington, D.C. three years ago, and I got licensed at the DC district court so that I could file lawsuits within DC. And since the state department's there, mm. you can't, you can't sue to appeal the denial of the case, but you can sue them to ask a judge to make them hurry up because the law says that the state department can approve a case or they can deny a case, but they can't sit on a case forever. And so I file these lawsuits to try to get people's cases moving again. And so, Morocco, I've sued them 60 times, which is wow. Sued all the other embassies combined. Oh, this is the U.S. embassy in Morocco. Correct. And they're governed by U.S. law, so it makes sense. Okay, okay, that right. makes sense. That makes sense. But let me touch on something you said a couple of minutes ago. So you were actually studying to become a Jesuit priest when you were younger. Yeah. But you ended up converting to Islam. Right. And I can say, is this because of the lady you got married to? Yeah, I would say that I really struggled. There was a lot of issues in my parish that I grew up in with priests, with priest problems, with pedophile mm. priests. And so that really turned me off the church. And when I left the Jesuits, I was sort of 
a-religious or anti-religious even, I would say. And so what happened was when I left the Jesuits, I weighed 320 pounds and I was miserable and I was like an angry fellow. And so what happened was, is I eventually, I started going to, well, actually what happened, we were on a retreat in Denver and I went into the library. It was a silent retreat. So we had to be quiet for 48 hours. We couldn't talk to anybody. A silent retreat. Silent retreat, yeah. Okay. It's supposed to help you find, you know, a connection with God and, and all that stuff. And so what happened was, is I went into the library and I was looking for something to read because I was bored. And so I found the, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm. And Anonymous was right next to this book by a comedian named Louis Anderson. So Anderson and Anonymous were right next to each other. Louis Anderson was, had struggled with his weight his whole time. So I was reading the Alcoholics Anonymous big book and the Louis Anderson book about food and weight. And so without anybody telling me, I read the 12 steps, even though it was about alcohol, I read about it with food. And so that led me to Overeaters Anonymous. And when I was in Overeaters Anonymous, I would go to a 12 step meeting and talk about food and struggling with food. And um, eventually I came to, rely on a higher power that was different than the Catholic church I'd grown up in. So mm. when I did that, I had to, uh, I, I sort of cut out the middleman, no priest. It was just me and a higher power. And I started relying on a higher power to do for me what I couldn't do for myself. And then when I met my wife and started studying Islam, it was already about a connection with a higher power and, and it was in the direct line. So it was sort of more segue from Catholicism to the 12 steps to Islam. And to so Islam. a lot of my Islam is infused with stuff from the 12 steps. Oh, that's pretty interesting. How, how did your family re- react to that? Um, or maybe your close friends? Did you lose a lot of friends over that? I don't really spend a lot of time talking about that because at the time it was really hard for my parents. Um, my mom had taught Catholic school, um, grade school, and my dad worked all these extra jobs to send me to Catholic school. But over time, they've come to understand my frustration with the church when it comes to priests and they love me and they, as hard as it was for them, they sort of rose above it and came to terms with it. And now everything between me and my parents are great. Um, We have a really good relationship and they're actively involved in my life and my kid's life. And so it's hard. I mean, when you make a decision like that, I, it's interesting to me, the people who are most confident, in their own religion or their own religiosity mm-hmm. I had no problem with what I did. But the people who there were people who I think weren't so comfortable with who they were and that yep. and I really threw them for a loop, if that makes sense. Yep. I mean, it makes total sense. I mean, my last interview, I was interviewed some, someone who was trying to convert to uh, a religion called Afa, which is like an ancient African religion. And where I come from, uh, Christians and worshipers of Ifa don't really mix, but I'm Christian. But I'm confident in my religion. I'm comfortable in my space. So I had that conversation with him. We talked about it. He told me about the initiation and everything. And I had some family members reaching out to me. That, How could you like you know relate with someone who's not? I was like... I mean, it's not like I'm converting. I'm just having a conversation with this guy. You know, him practicing a different religion doesn't mean I can't talk to him or I can't relate with him, you know, things like that. So I do understand people holding their religion too tight up to the point that they can't even, you know, interact with people from a different religion, things like that. Yeah, yeah and it's, it's interesting to find out about other people and about the similarities between religion. And so, you know, I, I was talking to my mom a while back and she said that I just, I like to ask people questions and I like to talk to people. So you know, getting to hear about other people's belief systems is always interesting. 
Yeah. Um, okay, so let's uh, dive in into some immigration issues uh, for a bit. So we've uh, agreed that uh, this episode will be primarily for U.S. citizens, so people who are already Americans who maybe have been hearing things about immigration here and there but don't really understand or haven't you know, took the time to understand because that's not their world, uh, understandably. Maybe we can talk about some of the visitors, talk about uh, some experiences some people might have you know, coming to the country, how hard it is to stay. So just you know, exposing them to some of these issues so they can better understand if they have a co-worker from a different country or if they, they go to school with someone from a different country, you know, trying to help them understand their plight and uh, things like that. So I guess uh, you work with a lot of uh, foreigners. You said you work with a lot of Muslim clients, but can you give me like, just to start off here, like a quick example, one memorable case that you know of someone who was, you know, trying to get come to the country. It took him or her like a while to get here, but eventually he came here and he achieved like the American dream, in quote. Sure, sure, sure. I'm happy to tell you that. Maybe it might be good for us to talk through a little bit about the hierarchy of immigration status, because mm-hmm. I think that'll help explain things to people. A lot of people um, think of it as a ladder. So, you know, so one big, one big thing to keep in mind in American immigration law is that there's a big distinction between non-immigrant visas and immigrant visas. So a non-immigrant visa means that I want to come to the United States, hang out for a certain period of time, and then go back. So those would typically be visit visas, Mm-hmm. Visa waiver program, student visas, and some work visas. Okay, so ordinarily, you know, and a visa is actually your ticket into the United States. So you you would apply for a visa through the U.S. Embassy in in your home country, and if you're approved, you get to come to the United States. Now, one thing that people might be surprised to learn when it comes to visit visas is that eighty percent of visit visas to the United States are denied. So Correct. When you apply for a visit visa, one of the main things is, is this person going to return to their home country? In other words, do they have a bank account? Do they have a job? Are they leaving their kids here so that they can go visit the United States? And do I believe, do I, the embassy official, believe that they're going to come back? So a lot of those are denied. And in the current administration, we're also seeing a lot of student visas denied. So these are situations where you have a really smart student. Let's say they're um, in Nigeria and they're really smart. And they find a school. Um, where do you live? In De- currently? Uh-huh. In Denver, actually. Oh, Denver. Oh, that, oh, nice. I love Denver. So <laughs> yeah. let's say you have a, a nice Nigerian student, super smart, finds a school, let's say the University of Denver, and University of Denver issues them an I-20 and wants them to come, and the student has the money to pay their tuition, that even with all that being said, the embassy is now actively trying to find reasons to deny people their visa and they don't have to explain and there's no way to appeal it. So yeah, those are some of the things we're seeing with the non-immigrant visa. So an immigrant visa is I want to stay in the United States. I want to plant my flag here. I want to be a lawful permanent resident, which then puts you one rung beneath citizenship. So we have the people on the non-immigrant visas and then immigrant visas there's four ways to get a green card or an immigrant visa to the United States. One is marriage or a relation to a U.S. citizen that's like a mother or father or a child. One is through employment. So you have an employer who's sponsoring you for a pretty technical occupation. It can't just be for like a dishwasher. There's something called the diversity visa, which would allow people not from Nigeria, but from other countries that are underrepresented in the United States. So I had an asylum case once for a kid from Burundi. I didn't know where Burundi was, but kids from Burundi, any of the, 
they take the top 20 countries of which they're the most people like Mexico, China, yeah. and Pakistan and India. They can't do the diversity visa. But if you're from Ireland or from Peru or from Zimbabwe, you can apply for the diversity visa. And that's kind of like a lottery, right? Yeah, they set aside 50,000 people, 50,000 visas for people that apply for the lottery. And a million people apply. But every year, even in my little immigration office, we handle two or three of those. So it's it's definitely worth doing if that's something you want to do. And then the last way people get a green card is either through asylum, which means I'm here in the United States and I fear that if I go back to Nigeria, the, the Muslims are going to kill me or the Christians are going to kill me or the government's going to kill me. Or, and they're going to kill me because of something about myself that I can't change or shouldn't have to change. They're going to kill me because I'm gay. Or they're going to kill me because I speak out against the government. Or they're going to kill me because my father was involved in the last government and there's been a coup. Those kinds of things. Yeah. So those are the ways that people can get to stay in the United States. And once you have your green card, if you wait five years, you can apply for citizenship. And then when you're a citizen, you can't be deported. You get to serve on juries. You get to vote. You can run for office. And if you're married to a U.S. citizen, you only have to wait for three years for a green card. So those are all the ways that all the different immigration statuses. I mean, there's other kinds of, but those are the main immigration um, situations that people have. And so what a lot of people will do is they'll come here on, let's say, an F1 student visa. And they'll study for four years. And then when they're done, they might want to work in the United States. Well, it's hard to go from a student visa to a work visa. So there's this thing called optional practical training. Mm-hmm. where they can work under their F1 at the end of their studies with an employer and the employer can figure out whether they want to try to sponsor them for a work visa. Mm-hmm. They get a work visa, then they could get a green card. And if they get a green card, then eventually, like I said, they become a citizen. Then if they become a citizen or even a green card holder and they marry someone from overseas, they can bring them here. And then that can start a whole other cycle. Now, those who oppose immigration derisively call that chain migration. What we call it is family immigration. So you're actually bringing families together. So that's something that's really hotly debated in Congress from time to time. There's people that want to do away with that diversity visa that I mentioned. There's yeah. people that want to do away with family preferences, want to give green cards only to people who have really high paying jobs and mm-hmm. those kinds of things. So those are sort of all the aspects. Now getting to your question about can I think of a success story of someone who, yeah, I do, I do have a success story. So I have a client. He's a really, really great guy. His name is um, Omed. And Omed came to the United States as a refugee from Iraq uh, during the war. And he opened up. Wait, uh, during the war? I mean, after the war. You know, okay. At the end of the war, he came as a refugee. And he um, opened up a Euro stand. So he sells Euros. And he opened up another one. And I remember when he had his green card, he wanted to bring his wife and children here from Iraq. And so he, that guy came and brought me $50 every week. Right. Wow. I I started his case ahead of time. Dude never missed a payment. Right. Yeah. So um, since that time he's gotten his citizenship, his wife and kids have gotten their citizenship. He now owns, I think like five Euro restaurants. Wow. Last time he came to see me, he had a really nice um, Toyota, Maybe it was a Nissan Pathfinder. It was really a Toyota Highlander. And so he's done really well. So, you know, a lot of times people, especially those who don't like immigrants, like to paint them as, you know, just coming to the United States to get what they can. And in my experience, for the most part, the most of the immigrants who come to see me and who um, want to get an immigration benefit usually are doing that to improve their place in life and the life of their children. Most Correct. 
Correct. And that that's some things, uh, if I can say so myself, uh, where some people fail to see, like the hard work, you just talked about OMED bringing you $50 like every week. Uh, you, I just graduated like a couple of months ago and it's not uncommon to see, uh, you know, sophomores or seniors or juniors who are like 25 or 26 years old. And that's not because, you know, they went to school, they just because they had to do a couple of things before they were even eligible to go to school, uh, being an immigrant, uh, you know, per se. And, you know, just that diligence and working hard and, you know, grinding for about 10 years to do things that, you know, ordinarily, you know, Americans who were born here just had the opportunity to do. Uh, and, you know, you also talked about um, Congress and some other people wanted to do away with chain migration and other things like that. But uh, people fail to also realize the economic benefits that immigrants bring. I mean, the contribution to, you know, agencies like the IRS and all these people uh, and how, especially, you know, here, me being in Denver, I moved to Denver a couple of months ago and it's... Uh, if I would say maybe an immigrant friendly city, if I could use that sure. word. Yeah, and sure. you know, that's something the government always they always release statistics on the economic contributions of immigrants. But this is something that, you know, uh, some people might not see. But breaking down the visa types, you know, you talked about the immigrant visas and the non-immigrant visa types. I kind of like have this list of a couple of them. And maybe we can just touch on about sure. maybe five or six of them sure. uh, to explain to people who don't know what they are at all. I'm mean, a couple of them you've talked about, but I'll just run through uh, some I'll of know, them. Hopefully, I'll know these. Otherwise, I'll look like I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I mean, you're fine. I'm sure you should be fine. Pretty easy ones. Uh, okay, good. Um, so let's start from the B1, B2 visa. I guess uh, that that's the visa I first came to the U.S. as the very first time I came to the U.S. in 2016 to visit my brother. Uh, but that's uh, primarily a tourist visa. Can you explain what that is? The B1, B2. Yeah, that's the one I was sort of talking about a little earlier where someone wants to come to the United States and visit. Usually, um, depending on the country, you'll either get a single entry visa, which means you can come one time. You might get a single year visa, which means you can come once or twice during the year. Yeah. Or you'll get a multiple entry visa. So you get a visa for five or 10 years and you can come and enter and go back. And so typically when you enter, they stamp your passport and give you a certain deadline to leave. Usually that deadline is six months. So mm -hmm. um, most people come to visit either to see family or for a short business trip. You can't work on a B1, B2, but you can come and visit. So like I said, a lot of visit visas are denied. A lot of people get really frustrated about that. In fact, I got so tired of answering people's questions, I made a YouTube video. So I have this <laughs> crazy immigration YouTube channel. And for a long time, not anymore, but for a long time, the number one, video that was watched was why is my visit visa denied or what should I do? And so I just made that video because we don't even bother handling those cases because most of them are denied. And even if people promise you that they're not going to get mad when it gets denied, they still get mad. And so it's really frustrating. And so we just made the video. And then when people ask us questions, we just point them that direction. Makes sense. Makes sense. And, and what um, some people also fail to understand, like you said, you know, having a B1, B2 visa, you're not allowed to work in the U.S. And But when people obtain that visa, that visa has various validities, depending on the country you come from. Some are valued for a month, two months, some are valued for up to 10 years. 
But I've seen situations where people get a visiting visa for a month and then they want to get a ticket to the U.S., but the closest time they can buy a ticket to the U.S. is two months from now because the flights that go out from their country into the U.S. come every other week. So they have this visa for a month, but they have no way to come to the U.S. and they just sit in their country until the visa expires. And, you know, having a visa, visiting visa, not using it to visit the U.S. if it expires, you know, renewing that visa, then, you know, there's... And another challenge, basically. So just some of the nuances that people might not understand, uh, uh, you know, immigrants going through coming to visit. Uh, what about the F-1 visa? You talked about this also a little bit earlier. There's two kinds of student visas. One's an F-1 student, one's a J-1 student visa. So mm-hmm. an F-1 is sort of more the traditional, I have found a university that wants to accept me, I want to study um, on an F-1 visa, and you line that up through the university. You demonstrate that you have the ability to pay the tuition for the full time that you're going to be here. You can't get an F-1 for an associate's degree or even for high school, but most F-1s are for four-year institutions of higher learning. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then when the student is done, they can stay in the United States for an extra year and work on that F-1 with an employer um, as long as it's something within their field of study. And then if they're in a STEM field, you can actually extend that two more years. And so the reason the STEM extension for OPT on F1s is so important is because that allows them to go through the H1B lottery three times. So every year on April 1st, there's a lottery to determine who gets work visas. So having the opportunity to stay here longer gives you a better chance of getting selected in the lottery. OPT, exactly. And you just touched on a couple of things that I want to elaborate. So I went to Canada last year. Uh, Like I said, I just graduated a couple of months ago. Uh, I came to the U.S. with a student visa to go to school, and I went for a competition in Vancouver, Canada, and uh, a university in Canada with American teammates. So I was more or less like the only foreigner. So coming back to D.C., uh, flying from Vancouver, connecting Toronto, getting back to D.C., from Toronto to connect to our flight, they all had U.S. passports, and our flight was in about 20 minutes, so everyone was, like, running through the airport, and when they got to, like, customs or something, they just flashed their blue passports and just went ahead. I was on a student visa, so I had to, like, bring out my I-20. They had to ask me, okay, what's going on? Are you still in school? All this stuff, and my teammates were looking at me like, dude, like, the flight is about to take off because they didn't understand. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't understand that I didn't have like a, uh, uh, an American uh, visa. So just some of the nuances there. And you talked about the optional practical training, right? Which is you're allowed to stay one year after you graduate to kind of like find a job, to gain real life experience in the field uh, that you studied and things like that. And some students, like people who go to school, some Americans don't really understand that when people are looking for jobs, they try to look for organizations who would allow them, you know, be on optional practical training and maybe even sponsor them for additional uh, H-1B or things like that. So you have situations where people are asking, oh, why don't you apply for this job? Or these guys are hiring or those guys are hiring. They don't know that uh, immigrants have to like drill down, really do their investigations to see if the organization is one They'll allow them stay for OPT and not just that, uh, maybe there'll be the chance of like getting a H-1B. And graduating as an immigrant, you have to get a job basically within the first 90 days after graduation, more or less. If you don't get a job within the first 90 days, the government will consider you out of status and, you know, you're expected to go back to your country because why you, and not knowing that you don't, you didn't get a job, not because you don't want a job, but because, you know, you're applying and maybe you're not just getting those interviews or people are denying you a job, you know, things like that. 
So, yeah, so that, this is one of my favorite topics. I'd love to go to universities and talk to the international students and talk to them about what happens after their F1. Like if they want to stay in theory, if you want to stay in the United States, you could come on an F1 and stay all the way up through citizenship if you wanted to. And if you have the right job offers. So I wrote a little book because I kept giving that talk over and over. So people can download it for free. It's at stayingherebook.com, stayingherebook.com. And it's sort of my canned speech that I give on how to go from OPT, why you want to graduate in May instead of in December, what do you need to think about when you're talking to an employer about OPT or about H-1B sponsorship, how to frame it, you know, what happens if you don't get selected in the lottery, what happens if you do get selected in the lottery. So this is really one of my favorite things to talk about. In my mind, you tell me what you think, in my mind, you know, there's a wide there's a wide difference between the way some universities treat international students and others. They all like to get yep. the international student dollars. Of course, more money, yeah. Yeah, but because international students, as we know, pay the highest rate. So some universities take that as they should, like a sacred oath, and we, you know, we make these kids these promises, but then they end up getting a, a, a degree that's not going to let them have long-term success. They don't really put them in a situation where they're going to be in a position to get a work visa. They don't really teach them the right things. And so I think every university has a moral obligation if they're going to take all that money from an international student. To, to create them, the opportunities, right? Yep. I mean, some universities, to be fair, you're correct. Some universities don't really care to just take the money and look the other way. But some universities, they do care, but they, they, they don't just have that competence. Like you're a liberal arts college, for instance. Like you have no competence in engineering. You don't have the networks in the engineering industry. You don't have alumni in the engineering field, for instance. So it's more it's difficult to kind of like match students uh, to, you know, fields like engineering who, you know, can probably get to stay more than a liberal arts degree, that kind of thing. And usually, usually the international student office, there's degrees of sophistication. The ones that really the bigger universities, they're very sophisticated. They're almost like lawyers. They might have a lawyer. They really know what's going on. But some of the people who are acting as the international student advisor are also the assistant soccer coach and the physical education teacher or yeah. the nursing teacher. Yeah. So they have like five jobs, right? And so yeah. they screw up the I-20s. They screw up students cases all the time. So mm -hmm. one thing I always tell international students is you have your own responsibility for your case. Nobody cares about your case as much as you. Somebody's telling you something that doesn't sound right or is wrong. You need to really make sure that you advocate for yourself. Correct. Correct. And one thing I've always like confused me as a, even as a holder of an F1 visa, sometimes it's confusing to know the difference between an F1 and a J1 visa. So some countries, uh, I initially, I just thought that, Hey, maybe the J1 is just the equivalent of an F1 for some specific countries. But I got to understand that the J1 visa is kind of like for more like cultural exchange. So it's like education plus X. Meanwhile, F1 is strictly like education. Is that a correct notion to have? So the J-1 sort of came about after World War II and mm. a lot of devastated countries. And the United States wanted to export democracy. And one way they wanted to do that was to bring international scholars to the United States to study. Mm -hmm. And many J-1s carry a requirement with it called 212E, which requires them to go back home for two years at the end of their study. Yeah. So when they go back home, the, when they're done with their study, so the J-1 is sort of easy to get. And sometimes you can get funding to support your education here, but it has this poison pill, which is that you have to go back home to your home country. There are yeah. ways to get that waived, but it's a real hassle. So 
we're always encouraging people to try to get an F1 instead of a J1. Instead of a J1. And it's funny you say that because, you know, I think a popular program that promotes the J1 visa is the Fulbright program. So they bring all these Fulbright scholars, which are, you know, really intelligent people from all over the world. And initially I thought, you know, they're just helping people out, bring, you know, bringing them to the U.S. to study. But you mentioned exporting democracy, which makes sense because you come here, you spend a couple of years, you, you know, integrate into the American way of life. You go back, most Fulbright scholars end up becoming political leaders in their countries. So that in itself is a way to export. So it's still kind of like pushing that democratic uh, agenda in a way. Right. Um, Okay. What about the E2 visa, the investor visa? Right. So the United States has treaties with other countries and there's a list. If you try, if you Google E2 investor visa countries, you can see if your country has engaged in these treaties, but basically it allows people to come to the United States and start a business and to get a non-immigrant visa to stay and work in the United States. So, and that E2 visa can be renewed. So we've handled E2 investor visas both um, from inception and for renewal. And it is a nice way to allow people to come to the United States and work. It's not always a long-term solution because it's not any path in and of itself to citizenship or even to a green card. But it, it is a way that allows people to run. I mean, we, I've seen people on an E2 for 12 years, 10 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. That long. So it doesn't have like a validity? It doesn't have an expiration date? It does, but you can renew it. Gotcha, gotcha. And I, I, I think that's also close to the EB-5 visa, which is also like an investor visa. Yeah, so the EB-5 investor visa. So just so you know, I've literally had probably 150 people call me about the investor visa. And okay. the reason for that is that they want the, the EB-5 investor visa program um, allows someone, a foreign national, to invest in the United States, to start a business. And that's the kind that actually puts them on the path to a green card. But the system has been plagued with corruption. It often doesn't work. Of those 100 people that I've talked to, none of them have ever done it. I refer them to an attorney who does these all the time. Mm. It's a real subspecialty within immigration. Um, so it's, it's hard. The program's always under assault in Congress, and the current administration is looking adversely against it. And for people from China, there's now even a backlog. There's like too many people applying for it. So um, it's a program that may eventually go away, but for now, it is a way that if you have half a million dollars or a million dollars, you might yeah. be able to invest and ultimately get a green card for yourself and for your family. Yeah. And that's so much capital, right? So you have people coming in who have like half a million dollars or a million dollars to invest. They buy up like a hotel or a franchise or Chick-fil-A or Subway franchise or something, classify that as an investment, then apply for the EB-5 visa. What happens to that hotel or that investment if they don't get the visa? Are they forced to sell it off or what? Yeah, so one of the things about the EB-5 is the money has to be truly at risk. You can't have secret side agreements. You can't can't say, well, I'm going to let you borrow the money if you need it. The money has to go into the company and has to be truly at risk. Now, one thing that a lot of people do is they'll pool their money. So you'll have like a project in Vermont, like let's say a ski resort, and let's say the ski resort needs $10 million. Well, they might find five immigrants to put up a million each, and they might Mm -hmm. find five U.S. citizens. And so, yeah, I mean, you're going to be actively involved in running a business and you're going to be making sure that your money's taken care of, but it's at risk like any other business. Got it. Got it. Okay. 
And um, uh, my favorite one, the O-1 visa. The O-1 visa. So that, see, I knew you were going to ask me one that I, I, I haven't handled any O's. I have handled P's. So O's are for performers. P's are for performers. O's are for people of extraordinary ability. So like uh, Major League Baseball athletes, professional soccer players, people playing at a very high level, they can yeah. actually get a green card through the O visa. Um, and then again, there are immigration lawyers who specialize just in O's and P's. So we do, we do P's around here, which is a non-immigrant visa for performers. There's a local circus in town. And so for the last five or six years, we've done their, their visa work because they bring in these international acts like acrobats and people. Mm -hmm. And then we trade, we do it for free. And then we trade them for tickets for everybody's kids to the show. Wow, wow. That talk about a symbiotic relationship there. But I didn't like when I thought about um old visas initially, I just thought about like really, really like high performing like athletes, like you said, like Olympic athletes or you know, people who had Nobel Prizes or scientists, you know, that kind of thing. But you know, drilling it down that, you know, even people who perform for certain entities, you know, like the circus at this kind, you know, go through the O one process. It's kind of what are some other examples of, you know, things uh maybe Maybe not up there like an Olympic athlete, but uh, performers you think can maybe go through the yeah, old. Professors and researchers can get those. Um, like I said, I haven't handled, I might have done one, but I haven't done any in a really long time. So it's not my expertise. Gotcha, gotcha. And the P visas, like you said, for performing musicians, especially those who are on tour, you know, want to come and perform in the U.S. during the summer and things like that, they can get the P visas for themselves. Uh, I guess they are band members and managers. Is that correct? Yeah. So the people that are performing would get a P1, and then the people that support them would get what's called a P2, which is sort of dependent or participating in the act or the show. Got it. So does that mean even if you're like a makeup artist or like you're in charge of the lights or things, the props they use on the stage, you can potentially get like a P2 visa? Well, it's tough. I think you're going to have to show something more than that. If, if they if they think that there's Americans who can do those little piddly things, that's going to be harder than if it's somebody who's sort of your lifelong, all the time assistant. Got it. And per eventually, you know, you get one of these visas and, you know, you maybe something happens and, and you're still in the country when your visa is supposed to have expired or you, you can't go back to the country for some reason. Maybe you're facing like a prosecution in your country. Uh, can you explain what the term out of status means? And is that the general term used for all kinds of visas, out of status? Yeah, so that's a great question. So in our office, we don't use phrases like illegal aliens. We don't think people can be illegal. We don't, you know, people that commit a crime, we don't call illegal. And of course, most immigration violations are civil violations as opposed to criminal violations. So the phrases that we use are for, for and, and this is an important thing. So in immigration, the law makes a huge distinction between people who were inspected and those who were uninspected. So inspected is like when you were just saying when you were running through the airport, trying to get through customs, you were inspected by a customs official, so you were properly inspected. If someone came across the Rio Grande or snuck across the desert in Arizona and never interacted with a customs and border patrol or any other government official, then they're what's called entered without inspection or EWI. We call them EWI. So mm -hmm. um, those are people who are here undocumented. And then the, the other group of people who are here without status usually are those who are visa overstays. So for instance, when you came on your visit visa, if you had never gone home, you would be a visa overstay. And it's interesting in the law, they make a big distinction. So 
if someone comes on a visa and they are inspected and they overstay, then if years go by and they don't break the law, but they marry a U.S. citizen, that overstay or even working without permission during that overstay can be forgiven. Mm-hmm. But if somebody entered without inspection and marries a U.S. citizen, it's unlikely that they're going to be able to get a green card through marriage unless they can show that them being sent back home and separated from their U.S. citizen spouse would produce an extreme and unusual hardship on the U.S. citizen spouse. So mm-hmm. they understand that being deported or being separated from your husband or your wife is going to cause you hardship, but you're going to have to show extreme and unusual hardship and you can apply for a waiver. So you would have to show that the U.S. citizen has special health issues or other reasons why they can't go back with you to the home country. Got it. Got it. That's that's a very, very insightful, insightful. And how much time do you think, uh, let's say the typical process or maybe let's say coming here on the tourist visa or coming here to school how much time do you think it takes like end to end for someone who's just visiting the u.s to eventually become a u.s citizen okay so that's a great question let's let's do a hypothetical mm-hmm. so we have somebody named john back in nigeria who wants to come to the united states he gets a, a student visa he studies for four years he graduates from the university of denver he uh gets opt and let's say he's a software engineer, so he gets three years of OPT. During the second year of OPT, he gets selected in the H-1B lottery. The employer loves him. He's indispensable. They love him so much that they're willing to go through all the hassle to try to get him a green card. That process is going to take two years. Once he gets his green card, he's going to have to wait five years to apply for citizenship. And then once he applies for citizenship, it's going to be about a one-year wait to get the actual ceremony. So yep. altogether, that's four plus two plus three plus five plus one. So that's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So well, well, well over a decade wait to, sure. to, to get citizenship just, just to, you know, and I needed to say that just to make people understand what, uh, when uh, people are so happy and, you know, posting all those pictures during the ceremony for citizenship on Facebook and, you know, so elated and people commenting just to know uh, the, the path, you know, the, the time it took to actually get there. So a couple of things. Number one is one of the one of our team members here in the office, she's originally from Peru and she married a US citizen. So a couple of Fridays ago we shut down the firm and we all went to her naturalization ceremony, which was wow. Cool. Wow. wow. Sometimes I get asked to actually speak at the naturalization ceremonies, like as the guest speaker. Gotcha. And one of the things that, that I always do at the start of my talk is to ask all the people who are about to be sworn in as US citizens to close their eyes. And to think about the day that they landed in the United States and to think about all the people back in their home country who told them they were stupid and it was never going to work and they were never going to make it here. And -hmm. to think about all the struggles and the hard work and the effort that it took to, I mean, because really when you get to a naturalization ceremony, it's, it's, to me, it's almost like a religious experience. It's, it's all these people from all over the world. And, you know, we list the countries that they're from and, and here in St. Louis, they actually pass the mic to each person and they, they have to say, my name is Joe. I'm from Ireland and I am a truck driver. And so they pass it along. So just when you think about the mathematical numbers of what the chances are of all of us being in that room together at the exact same moment, it's astronomical, right? Mm. I mean, you get 50 people naturalizing. 
from say 35 countries it's yeah. unbelievable do these ceremonies hold in all 50 states or just like regional or how, how do they happen yeah so up until the early 90s only federal judges could naturalize people so okay. you actually apply through the federal court immigration would recommend for approval but they they've taken federal courts out of most of the process of naturalization but in most jurisdictions the judges still do do the ceremony but uscis does all the processing in Got some it. bigger some bigger jurisdictions like minneapolis atlanta they'll actually naturalize people sometimes on the day of their interview they don't need a judge unless the person's changing their name if they're changing their name they have to uh, go to see a federal judge because only the federal judge can change their name but even like in a small town like st louis they probably do three ceremonies a month and and it would just be for everybody in the eastern half of missouri and the southern part of illinois and they would uh those would probably have so they probably do about 150 people a month and then out denver it's probably a lot bigger denver I've actually been to that Denver immigration office. They're not, they're not very nice over there to tell you the truth. <laughs> um, in fact, I got mad. I got so mad one time when they denied one of my clients and jerked him around. I made this video outside there. I probably should take it down because I really got mad. But um, each immigration office is different. They each have their own culture, their own way of approaching things. And that goes back to that arbitrary and capricious thing I said before. Yep. Where some, some offices want to approve people. Some people just want to deny everybody. So um, it's not supposed to be that way. Gotcha, gotcha. And uh, you also said something about the H-1B earlier, and I forgot to chip this in. So basically, if you have a H-1B, which means uh, you're working for a company and the company applied for a H-1B visa for you being an employee, you can't take that H-1B visa to then go and work for a different employer, correct? Yeah, so you have to operate from the assumption that, that immigrants are generally prohibited from working in the United States. And the only mm. exception to that is if they get a, a work visa to work in the United States. Now, mm -hmm. there aren't, generally, there aren't work visas available for people to make pizza or drive a cab. It's for specialty occupations. So it's sort of like jobs that require a specific degree in a specific specialized field. So the H-1B system, so every year, there are 65,000 H-1B visas set aside for people from, foreign countries who want to work in the United States. And so they run a lottery every year. So generally there's about 200 or 225,000 people that apply. There's 65,000 H-1Bs for people with bachelor's degrees and another 20,000 for people with master's degrees from U.S. institutions of higher learning. So once you've made it through that visa lottery, if you start working for your employer and you don't like it, you can, as you said, in most instances, take that H-1B with you and you become much more valuable because you've already counted against that cap. And if an employer hires you, they know that you're most likely going to get the H-1B. Now, I will say that although I have many problems with the Trump administration when it comes to immigration, when it comes to H-1Bs, for a very, very long time, the system is very much abused, and it's abusive towards immigrants. And it's also stacked in favor of these staffing companies that gobble up all the H-1B. So let's say you found, let's say, you, what what did you study when you were in school? Uh, business, MBA. Yeah, so let's say you found someone, MBAs are hard to get an H-1B for, but let's say you found one, an employer that wanted to sponsor you for an H-1B if you needed it. So y your employer would file one H-1B. Well, some of these companies, 
they know they need 10,000 people. So they'll, they'll apply for 20,000 H-1Bs. Mm. That's what really makes it harder for what I would call mom and pop employers to get an H-1B. It's still po- possible. So the Trump administration is really trying to crack down on these staffing companies. So let's say, um, who's the biggest employer in Denver? Um, I don't know, maybe Davida, I guess, or yeah, Coors? Coors. Coors Beer is, is out in Boulder. So let's mm. say Coors, Coors wants to sponsor people for H-1Bs. They don't necessarily want to go through the hassle of the H-1B, so they're going to hire a staffing company, and that staffing company hires another staffing company, and then that staffing company hires the end worker. Mm. So there's all these people getting a cut in between of the yep. money. So, so <clears throat> the employer has to pay the prevailing wage because they don't want to deflate U.S. workers' wages. So they agree to pay 135000 but they'll also pay an extra 30000 and that 30000 goes down to the company beneath them, goes to the company beneath them. So really, it's sort of an indentured servitude. I really don't like the program the way that it's done, and I don't think it's fair. So the crackdown on H-1Bs is something that I actually like because every year in February and March, you wouldn't believe, because of the YouTube channel that I have, yeah. you get all these people who message me about all the ways their employers who are these middle-level Indian staffing companies are just abusing the crap out of people. Yeah. And does that happen? I've heard about that happen a lot, like in the tech industry, like in all these big tech companies, you know, outsourcing to the staffing companies who then, you know, just abuse the system, uh, basically. Um, Last thing, what about uh, asylum seekers? So um, you came over from a, a foreign country, and, and this has been something that has been in the news, you know, the last couple of months. Uh, you want to seek asylum into the U.S. Um, if you are eventually granted asylum, do you then, uh, some people argue that, you know, if you manage to come through the asylum system and you're granted asylum, you pretty much have more benefits than you have before any kind of visa, but it's very risky because, you know, only a handful of people are given asylum. Uh, is, that, uh, is that statement accurate in your view or no? I think I, I think I understand the point that you said people are trying to make. So let's talk about asylum. So if I am physically inside the United States and I fear going back home to my home country because I will be persecuted, mm-hmm. it's not because the economy's bad. It's not because people look at me funny there. It's because I will be persecuted, which is tortured or um, killed or jailed. All those things are reasons that you can get asylum if you can show that it's based on a protected reason, like my political opinion or my race or my religion, uh, my membership in a social group, those kinds of things. So So if you're in the United States, you can apply for asylum and you file this application and you submit all your evidence and you're going to have a hearing with an asylum officer. That mm. hearing is supposed to be non-adversarial. It's not supposed to be like a trial or then they're just supposed to get information out of you and try to decide your case. Now, five or six years ago, about 48% of cases got approved at that stage. Now, now I think the number's way down because Jeff Sessions, when he was attorney general, and Donald Trump and Stephen Miller, all those guys have really identified asylum as one of the things that they want to cut back on. They want to cut back on anything that allows brown people into the United States. So they want to cut down on asylum. They want to cut down on the surge. And I, I did air quotes for those of you listening. I can't, I can't say air quotes, but the surge across the border um, in this manufactured uh, 
controversy at the border that they've created by not allowing people in the United States to properly apply for asylum. Um, the asylum is under attack like no other aspect of immigration. Everything in immigration is hard right now. Everything is three times more difficult than it used to be. But asylum is off the chart in the ways that they're uh, trying to strip people's ability to make valid asylum claims. So um, asylum does have the benefit that you were getting at, which is that if you are awarded asylum, a year later you can apply for a green card. So you would pass by a lot of those visa things that we talked about earlier, but um, most asylum cases are denied. Um, it's a system that's under assault right now. And if you file what's called a frivolous asylum claim, that is if they figure out that you filed this asylum claim and it was all BS, then they can deny you for asylum and they can keep you from ever getting any immigration benefit for the rest of your life in the United States. So, yeah, and if you, if you get asylum, first off, that's great. If you don't get asylum from the asylum office, then you go to an immigration judge and you can raise asylum as a defense to being deported. But the other strange thing about immigration law is that we have these immigration courts which are sort of a joke. They're all part of the executive branch. They're not part of the judicial branch. They have no judicial independence. They're basically just a deportation machine that serves under the attorney general. And if the attorney general finds an immigration decision that's reached in a way that he doesn't like, he can put it aside and just change the law by writing in his own opinion. Wow. It's crazy. So I bring that up because right now they've taken some of the the few cases that were left that protect asylum seekers, mm -hmm. and they've gutted them by writing really restrictive conditions into an asylum case. So now it's almost impossible to approve to approve an asylum case. It's very, very hard. Gotcha. Uh, also, let me talk about what if you're like an American and um, maybe it's proven or, you know, you're being accused of aiding and abetting if there's anything like that in the legal system and uh, an immigrant who's like out of status, maybe you're, you're giving someone a job or who's, who doesn't have the right visa to get a job or you're being accused of, you know, getting married to someone or, you know, some form. Uh, are, are there any kind of like penalties uh, for that, uh, being a U.S. citizen? Well, I mean, certainly there are employers who get in trouble for employing undocumented people or people with fake papers. There are employers who get in trouble for that. And there are people who get in trouble for filing fake marriage cases. So, but if you are a U.S. citizen and you marry a foreign national and they're out of status and you apply for them, you can't get in any trouble as long as it's a real marriage. If it's a fake marriage, you're going to get in trouble. But you can't get in trouble. You, you can't get in trouble for employing an undocumented person. That's a violation. You get fined for that or conceivably you could go to jail. Um, but for in the marriage context, unless it's a fake marriage, you're going to be okay. Got it, got it. So last question here, we've sort of like talked about, you know, some of the issues in the U.S. immigration systems regarding different aspects. What are some of the countries, uh, what, what countries do you think are getting it right or who are doing better than the U.S. regarding immigration cases? And some countries uh, that people who maybe don't succeed in the immigration cases in the U.S. can probably look at. Well, clearly the easiest example is Canada. Um, Canada is much more welcoming of refugees in particular. You know, that's one thing I didn't point out is that, so <clears throat> we talked about asylum and people who fear going back to their home country. We didn't spend much time talking about refugees. So refugees are people who have been mis uh, 
displaced because of war in their home country. And in the old days, the United States would accept about 100,000 100, uh, refugees uh, to come to the United States. And so, like I said, when we started the call, the International Institute um, sort of handled that for a lot of people here and there's other agencies like that around the country. Um, we are at a record low of people that we are allowing into the United States as refugees. Um, it's really sort of wrong the way that they frame it. They act like it's a matter of national security, but coming as a refugee is one of the hardest ways to come to the United States. If, if people who want to do harm to the United States want to come as a refugee, they'd have to wait like 10 or 12 years. So it really yeah. would be a bad idea. Yeah. So um, refugees, uh, I don't know how I got on this topic in particular, but refugees are someone who really are having a hard time and we're really not fulfilling our legal or I would say our moral obligations to help refugees. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. I mean, I know someone who um, he got into a refugee camp when he was like eight. He grew up, got married in the refugee camp, and he's like in his late 30s now and is just, you know, trying to uh, get go to school and graduate and get his CPA and all that. So it took a long, long time to, to really uh, cover that process. Uh, what are some of the resources you can recommend to people who want to un like understand? I know you mentioned the International Institutes, but what are like some websites on your YouTube channel, some books they could read? People want to understand immigration some more. Yeah, well, let's talk about it. So number one, I mean, there are a lot of myths about immigration. So I think everybody should spend a little bit of time trying to figure out, you know, what's true. There's a lot of bad spin, a lot of misinformation that's put out there about immigrants, you know. Like you were saying earlier, immigrants create jobs and create companies at higher levels of uh, native-born. Um, immigrants commit crimes at a lower rate than the native-born. So number one is educate yourself. Number two is press members of Congress. Nobody wants to take action on immigration. It's a hot topic. Obviously, nothing's going to happen now with a Democratic House and a Republican president. But immigration, I believe, is a civil rights issue of our time. So try to educate yourself. Get involved. If you hear stuff that's BS or racist or xenophobic, call them out for it. Be active on social media. Educate yourself. Educate your friends. Educate your family on immigration. From my point of view, uh, what what I like to do is teach people about immigration. I actually have about 900 pages of content on our website dedicated to immigration, and I also have I haven't looked lately, but I think it's over 400 YouTube videos explaining different con different. Uh, concepts from immigration. So if you just type in Jim Hacking Immigration, you'll find my YouTube channel. And there's people who watch those videos. We try to upload two or three a week. And then we also have a Facebook group for people who are interested in immigration or want to get news for immigration. And they can join our Facebook group, which is called Immigrant Home. And we also send out a weekly newsletter. If they email me, jim at hackinglawpractice.com, we can add them to our email list. We send out immigration news every Tuesday or Wednesday. Got it. Got it. And we'll have the link to like your YouTube page and maybe the Facebook group uh, in the description of this podcast. So if you just want to click on that, if you're a listener, it can take you directly to those pages. And last question. So currently you work out of Missouri. You've been practicing immigration law for well over a decade. You've been a lawyer for more than 20 years. Um, can you work with people from all over the world or from other states? Uh, how can they reach out to you if you can work with them? What do they do? to get in touch yeah, with so you. One of the great things about immigration is that it's federal. So I can handle cases all over the country. Now, some people do pay me to come out of town for a naturalization interview. Some people don't want to spend that much money. 
But certainly, like, if you're bringing a spouse here from overseas, there's lots of kinds of immigration cases that we can handle here from St. Louis. Plus, by getting admitted up in D.C., I can sue them uh, up in Washington, D.C. So I handle those cases all over the country. I, I handle appeals all over the country. So there's lots that we can do. My long-term goal is to open an office in Chicago and then an office in San Diego because I really want to live in San Diego. I really Why like Chicago? It. What's in Chicago? Oh, my wife is from Chicago. Oh, gotcha. We're licensed, we're licensed in Chicago. Uh, we're licensed in Illinois, I should say. And one day I went to the immigration office in Chicago and it's its, it's, its own building. It has, it has its own city block and they have wow. three floors. They have one floor for green cards, one floor for citizenship, and one floor for everything else. And so I went there and there were 65 people on each floor waiting to see an officer. The next wow. day I came back to St. Louis and there were three people in the waiting room waiting to see an officer. And I said, <laughs> my God, if we can keep four lawyers busy and yeah. 10, 10 paralegals in St. Louis, what could we do in Chicago? Chicago, or, gotcha. or what could we do in San Diego? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Perfect. Perfect. Uh, thank you so much for talking to me, Jim. Uh, hopefully we can get to do this uh, from another angle, you know, sometime in the future. And uh, if you're listening, this has been the Culture Class Podcast. Uh, we've been talking to Jim Hacken, who's an immigration lawyer. We'll have all these details in the description of the episode. Uh, follow us on social media, our Culture Class Podcast everywhere. Send us an email, cultureclasspodcast at gmail.com. And yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. I always like talking about immigration and, and I appreciate your interest in the topic. All right. <laughs>